Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. This week on the show, Los Angeles Times reporter Amy Kaufman and correspondent for NPR's Code Switch team, Karen Grigsby-Bates. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend. Finally. Finally. Is it? I don't know. It's like the years get shorter, but the weeks get longer. The weeks get longer, and because the news gets more intensive, it's sort yes. of like more packed, so it's like a jack-in-the-box. You know, when you turn that <laughs> yes. little thing, <laughs> Yes. Welcome to my guest, Amy Kaufman, who covers film, celebrity, and pop culture for the L.A. Times. Just back from Sundance. Thanks yes. for being here. And friend of the show, Karen Grigsby-Bates, correspondent for NPR's Code Switch, covering race, ethnicity, and culture. Uh, you all, we're joined in studio by one of my favorites this morning, Miss Alanis Morissette. She really is setting the mood. I like it. Yeah. So I am playing this song, which is a classic, Hand in My Pocket, because it was announced this week that her breakthrough album, Jagged Little Pill, is going to become a Broadway musical. Yes. I actually know Diablo Cody a little bit. Who's writing the book. Yes. She's been working on it for a long time. What have you heard about it? Well, they've been testing it um, in on the East Coast, uh, mm-hmm. in Boston and, and other places, mm-hmm. and I've heard it's pretty cool. Really? So, uh, so they've reviewed some of the early runs in Cambridge where they were testing it out, and apparently they use the catalog in these songs to confront heavy social issues like rape culture and addiction. And some reviews of the early productions say uh, they really try to cram a lot of social issues into the plot, to which I say... I'm here for it. Yes. I've also heard from Diablo that Alanis is like exactly what you'd want her to be, like really involved, really, really smart, really cool. So it doesn't surprise me that the show would tackle like serious social issues. I love it. I can't tell you, like this is going to be my personal Hamilton. I can't tell you how much <laughs> I love this album. I loved, like, I loved Alanis Morissette. I thought Hand in My Pocket was going to be an allusion to the fact that the government is raising the price of a forever stamp again for Christ. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, way I to know, bring it on down. Take him more money. Sorry. <laughs> That's what we old people do. I'm just mad they ever called it a forever stamp. You know it's not going to be forever. Well, it's forever until we raise it the next exactly. time. Exactly. Alanis would never do that to us. I'm free, but I'm focused. I'm green, but I'm wise. I'm hard, but I'm friendly, baby. All right. I'm sad, but I'm We're going to start our show as we always do. I'm going to ask uh, each of my guests to describe their week of news in only three words. You both have prepared for this. Karen, you can go first. My three words are beware your phone. <laughs> okay. Um, the Intercept and the Daily Appeal. Mm-hmm got together to do a great chunk of investigative reporting Mm -hmm. that looked at how prison systems around the country are starting to, I don't know if this is the right word, but I would say compromise their inmates. So if you are not Sam and you're inmate 54321, and you want to use the phone as you usually get to do, you know, once, twice a week, Uh now in certain prisons, when you go up to the phone, they say, Listen to the instructions from an automaton yeah. at the other end. And they have automaton to say at the stuff. Other end. And they have to say things. They have to say, you know, maybe the sky is blue. I eat puppies. Uh, there's free <laughs> chocolate in the commissary yeah. today. Whatever. Whatever yeah. they tell them to say. And they're using the inmates' voices 
as voice prints that they put into a database. So they have like a fingerprint, but it's made of but their voice. But it's made of your voice. It's very sneaky. It has not been transparent. Wow. Um, civil liberties groups are saying it's not even legal. They're pushing back. And um, What's the intention of it? That's a very good question, Amy, because they have not been transparent as to what the intention is. And so, Karen, you know, in this Intercept article, officials at these prisons say they're doing this voice print stuff as a means of fraud protection and to prevent, you know, criminal activity. Well, and there may be some of that, but they have not ground down to the particulars. And so we don't really know why they're using it, why they're collecting it what it's going to be used for, how long they're going to keep it, who else might be pulled into it. None of that stuff. Sketchy. Makes me think that there's probably voice prints on a lot of folks outside of prison as well. You know who's tracking these microphones right now? (laughs) Maybe. Here at NPR. Maybe. So there is another story that I saw this week, Karen, kind of tied to phones and privacy and data as well. I'm sure you both saw it. This story that Facebook was using an app to collect young people's data from their phones, and they were paying young people as young as 13 years old to basically install this app and share everything their phone has. And so these kids were getting $20 gift cards. I am amazed. To basically turn over all of their information. And they probably thought nothing of it. it. I'm amazed that they did it for $20 because $20 (laughs) to a kid today is like three or maybe $5 was to me when I was that age. Which was, you know, money, but not enough money to do what other people want you to do. So, But that's just... exactly the point. Like, kids think nothing of giving away their data. I saw at Sundance a uh-huh. documentary about Cambridge Analytica and that whole scandal. Oh, yeah. 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 And, you know, even though it showed all of the harrowing ways in which our data is being just mined from us, I was like, well, after watching all of it, You're I was like, like yeah, I mean, I was like, as long as they physically don't know where I am. I mean, just... But they do. But they do. <laughs> of course they I know, do. I know. You know what's so interesting, though? It's like, I think there's this perception that young kids are dumb about this stuff. They know all about how it works. They just care less than the rest of us, it seems. They don't right. care. And it's also, and I think this is also true for their <laughs> elders, that convenience is more important than whatever might come out of this data collection thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Amy, you have three words? I do. Okay. Okay. My words are a little dark this week. It's okay. Um, they are revelatory, harrowing, and emotional because oh, yeah. I saw Leaving Neverland, which is oh. the two-part docu-series that's going to air on HBO um, in March mm-hmm. about Michael Jackson and these two men, Wade Robson and James Safechuck, who say now, as adult men, that they realize they were sexually abused as young boys at the hands of Michael Jackson. Mm. It's a four-hour-long movie, huh? Yeah. They're going to air it in two parts, wow. but uh, it's four hours in total. And anyone who sees this, I think, is going to kind of have to reevaluate their relationship with Michael Jackson because mm. these two men, the way that they recount what happened to them is, in my opinion incredibly authoritative and Mm. believable Mm. and um, especially seeing the photos of these guys when they were seven years old when the abuse allegedly started you're just like this is one seven and one was ten yeah Yeah. they just look so little what was the mood in the room when the second part of this four-hour film finished it was somber as you might expect i mean 
um, they had the two men and the director walk up on stage and they got a standing ovation and mm. both of the men were crying. And mm. before the screening, a Sundance executive said, you know, this is going to be very graphic. And if anyone is too overwhelmed, we're actually going to have health counselors from the state of Utah in the lobby. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they took it, it really could be seriously. triggering for some people. Oh, I'm sure. Because wow. you don't really know who's in the audience or what their experiences have been. So that was smart. You know, there's already been pushback from Michael Jackson's estate, from Michael Jackson fans, um, like as you've noted. And a thing that I keep hearing is that both of these men in the 90s, they testified in a case on Michael Jackson's behalf. Right. This is the big sticking point for Michael Jackson fans, which is that um, in 1993, when Michael Jackson was first uh you know, investigated for child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Both James and Wade testified on his behalf defending him. And they were just boys at the time. But what they say in the film is that Jackson and his legal team were calling them nonstop and, you know, saying, you have to do this, you have to do this. If if you don't testify, they're going to ruin not just me, but you. You know, they don't understand us. They don't get the relationships we have. And then later in 2005, when Jackson was under um, investigation for similar charges, Wade Robson again testified really? on his behalf as an adult man. And similarly, you know, he gets into what he says now was a lot of pressure. He was a very well-known choreographer at the time for NSYNC and Britney Spears, and he had a career on the line. Oh, wait, what's his name? Wade, Wade Robson. I He was on TV. Yeah, he had an MTV show. Oh, my goodness. Yes. That was him. I did not realize that. I know. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So they are now talking about what drove them to what they say was lie um, mm-hmm. under oath. So, Amy, there's been a few statements from the Jackson estate. What do those say? Basically, in summary, they say that these two guys are full of it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that they are proven liars, that, you know, Michael Jackson is someone who always weathered um, attacks throughout his life and usually didn't fight back. But now it's so egregious that they have to. Um, Yeah, it's basically calling out these two guys and saying they're perjurers. What is, you know, part of me wants to think that this movie is happening because of the Me Too moment, but I'm not sure. I have heard that Tarana Burke, who founded the Me Too movement, was at the premiere at Sundance. Yeah, I actually spoke to her. She met with the two men one night to sort of discuss like what it might be like for them. They were going to receive Yeah, in the coming months, you know, how they should handle it because she was saying to me that she, you know, as a survivor of this kind of stuff, she receives this criticism on a daily basis. And her big point was that she thinks this film could do for the Me Too movement, um, what it could do for the Me Too movement is talk about boys and men in a different way because while the Me Too movement this past two years has really focused on women and that's incredibly important, um, boys and men is kind of a taboo subject still. Karen, I keep drawing parallels between this story and the story of R. Kelly, who is another black male R&B star who has been dogged by allegations of sexual abuse and misconduct for years. In the last few months, it seems that R. Kelly's star has faded, but I don't think the same thing will happen to, I guess, the legacy of Michael Jackson. I think part of the reason it's going to be harder to have that happen with Michael Jackson, even if people want it to happen, Mm -hmm. is that... He's perceived as his music is perceived as more user friendly, sort of whiter music it's in crossover. a lot of ways. He is so much more crossover than R. Kelly ever Whiter was. music, right? Yeah, than R. Kelly. I don't know. On Twitter, I have seen a, a range of diversity in terms of his fans who are at least coming for me. <laughs> no, Michael Jackson. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. but R. Kelly also was upfront about his like 
sexual nature in yeah. his songs. Like yeah. it was right there. He was yeah. putting it oh, out yeah. there. And MJ is like, I love everyone. The uh-huh. kids are great. You know, it's very different vibes. Boy. Well, I have three words too. Okay. I hope they're not as They are, yes. Please dark. lighten it up a bit. <laughs> they are the coffee's burnt. <laughs> and I'm talking about Howard Schultz. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> this is the <sighs> Howard Schultz, former Starbucks CEO who announced this week that he may run for president as an independent as soon as he says that folks in the GOP are like, yes, yes, run, run. This will guarantee that Trump wins re-election because you'll split the vote of his opposition. And then Democrats are like, how dare you run? This will split the vote of Trump opposition and guarantee that he wins re-election. And so he's had this hard time already finding a constituency. It's unclear if he is going to rely on conservative voters or liberals. If it's liberals, within one week, he has critiqued three big liberal stars. I'm talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Elizabeth Warren, and Kamala Harris. And he's critiqued all of them for their health care policies, for their policies on taxing the rich. And so, like, this is not a way to win liberal support by going after the biggest liberal stars of the moment. Another thing that he's already done is said that he is possibly planning on going to early caucus and primary states like Iowa, uh, to which many people said, you don't have to go to those states because if you run as an independent, you don't have to caucus or primary. Yeah. Learn the system, son. And so everything about this rollout just seems like it wasn't really planned out that well. As well planned out as race together. Oh, when he asked his baristas that? to talk about to talk race about at the race coffee store. All they wanted was a, was a latte and to get to work on time. <laughs> so, well, how do you feel about police brutality? He's like, you're not going to talk about that. Yeah, no. For, it's not a five-minute conversation. Yeah, yeah. So other possible independent candidates like Michael Bloomberg have already said, don't do this. It's not going to work. A lot of political scientists say they're actually isn't a strong base of independent voters in America. A lot of voters say they're independent, but they're actually partisan. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't. I just don't know what this man was thinking. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting that it sparked such outrage. Everyone is so mad about it. Because you would like the whole rhetoric I feel I hear so often is like our country's too divided. Like, let's bring things to the center. Yeah. But what it's exactly what you're saying. I don't know that many people actually believe in issues on both sides uh, of the aisle when it comes down to it. What would Howard Schultz's campaign slogan be? (laughs) A unicorn latte in every pot. Uh, uh, Caffeine, a spike of energy to the system. (laughs) (laughs) I'm into that. I'm into that. All right, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. Going to go to a break now, but coming up, I'm going to chat with sports reporter Clinton Yates about why the NFL, after months, if not years, of very bad headlines, saw an actual ratings increase over this past season. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. I feel pretty. When do we feel pretty? pretty. Why do we feel pretty? And who gets to decide what pretty is? We'll answer our listeners' questions all about beauty this week on the Code Switch Podcast. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests today. Amy Kaufman, who covers film, celebrity and pop culture at the L.A. Times, just back from Sundance. Overall, thumbs up or thumbs down? 
You know, a lot of critics were saying thumbs down, but I'm Ooh. a thumbs up because I'm a big documentary fan, and huh. there were really good documentaries okay. this year. Yeah. Good, good, good. Also here with Karen Grigsby-Bates, uh, who covers race and ethnicity and culture for NPR's Code Switch team. You weren't at uh, Sundance. But I was not a Sundance. You were in the office with me all week, which was fun. <laughs> yes. It's better than being a Sundance. I didn't need a coat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, question for you both. How excited are you for the Super Bowl? <laughs> okay. I'm excited for the commercials. Same. I saw the Chance commercial of oh, the, uh, the rapper? fired Doritos yeah. with the Backstreet Boys. Is it okay? I might have to turn on the television <laughs> just to see the commercials. I mean, I'm usually excited just for the halftime show, and now I'm like, mm, really I'm fine. They're okay. They're well, fine. So you guys are actually kind of a microcosm for all of L.A. There's some data that indicates that in spite of our hometown team making the big game, L.A doesn't really care that much. Uh, There was a story this week that shows that more Angelinos watched the Patriots beat the Kansas City Chiefs than actually watched the Rams beat the Saints. I hope those were Patriot-hating Angelinos that were giving some love to the Chiefs. (laughs) Who knows? Wait, Sam, I'll just admit, when you said, I didn't even know that the Rams (laughs) were in the Super Bowl. Wait, the LA Rams, our team. Yeah, see, that's just part of the no, problem. I just know they. I was. I should have known it because I saw they painted the Randy's donut to, <laughs> to the L.A. Rams color. They did. Wait, what are what's the L.A. Rams color? We're the worst. We're the worst. worst people. I was thinking this morning. I was like, you know what? If the L.A. Rams win the Super Bowl. I'll go to the parade if it's not too far from my house. It'll it'll go. You would through go downtown. to the parade. Mm-mm. He's not going to be able to miss the parade. Oh, is it going to go through downtown? Go, I think it'll go okay. through downtown. Anyway, so in spite of our general uh, lack of interest in the NFL this season, fun fact: overall, uh, the ratings for the league were up. So I called up a friend of the show, Clinton Yates. He is a radio host for ESPN and a columnist for ESPN's The Undefeated. He covers the sports. And I said, Clinton, let's talk about the NFL's season. So the last time I had you here, Clinton, Mm -hmm. we talked about uh, the NFL's troubles. And I have you here now after the NFL has had a few good weeks or months or even a good season. I mean, the ratings for the league, according to figures that they released last month for the last season, for the previous season, they were up like 5%. Yeah. I mean, look, by the time once the games come around, people have forgotten about all that nonsense. And there's so many more, and I only say nonsense in the context of the deluge of storylines and information, not in terms of the importance of the topic. So for a Colin Kaepernick or, you know, a domestic violence circumstance, once the games come around, people typically watch. And so I'm not entirely surprised that it's back because of the stars that we have. The Patriots are back on top. The Kansas City Chiefs have this kid named Pat Mahomes who threw 50 touchdown passes during the regular season. His father, a guy I know, Pat Mahomes, was a Major League Baseball player. So, you know, there's a fun story. You know, as soon as anybody gets anything they can hook themselves onto, people tend to come back to the television for the NFL, in my opinion. Yeah. It does feel really interesting, though, because to hear you allude to those plot lines and storylines, they're all still there, but it seems like they've went away. I'm talking about domestic violence with players, traumatic brain injuries, take a knee. All of those things are still issues the league is grappling with, but they all seem to be things that we've kind of stopped talking about. Why? A little bit. Um, I would say that because a lot of these guys who are involved in things like that typically aren't necessarily on the best teams. So by the time we get to the end of this, of the of this football season, 
we don't necessarily have them as part of our daily storylines for the teams that are playing, and so therefore they move outside of the regular news cycle. However, earlier this week, Roger Goodell did do his yearly State of the Union of the NFL speech, and a lot Mm -hmm. of these things came up. You know, he hearkened back to Martin Luther King because the Super Bowl is in Atlanta. He mentioned John Lewis, and then the first question was, well, how about the fact that there's not any black coaches in the league? You know, Hmm. so these issues, for people that are on the 10,000-foot view, I think pay more attention. But from the week to week, because the number of teams of importance dwindles, it's it's difficult. (laughs) Exactly. You know, I also read that... You know, one of the reasons the ratings might be up for the NFL this season is because a lot of teams have had these overhauls that have led to just really fun, high-scoring games. Um, this season had had the most touchdowns in history, I read. Yep. Um, this is what I was referring to in terms of this kid, Patrick Mahomes, and uh, the L.A. Rams. The Rams are a great example of this. The Rams are fun hmm. to watch. They also yeah. happen to have a good defensive player in Aaron Donald. But, yes, over the last five to ten seasons, the offensive nature of the NFL has drastically changed, not just the records. So what you talk about in terms of touchdowns piling up is a number that was going to get higher simply by default, but also the style of play. It's yeah. harder to play defense now. Like, I think football is more fun to watch. There are more touchdowns. You know, there's more passing. And hmm. as a result, yeah, the, the the product is different. I think what you're going to see in the Super Bowl regarding that is an L.A. Rams team that likes to throw the ball around a lot. Sean McVay, their coach, mm-hmm. a young guy, young young dude who looks, you know, a lot of people like to say is a, a bit of a hunk. He's a handsome man. <laughs> and uh, as a result, they sort of, you know, that team has kind of a sexy appeal to it that I think is embodied as much in the way they play football as the guys who do play it for them as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then, I mean, like, also, you know, speaking of L.A., how much of this ratings jump can just be simple math when teams in big media markets like L.A. do well, the yeah. ratings are up. I think that's a good point. And also, the Giants weren't good this year. Neither were the Jets. So hmm. the New York market wasn't even necessarily a bigger player than it could be. So I think in the next couple of years, you know, it might get bigger. And that wouldn't shock me. Huh. You know, another thing that I'm wondering with the game this weekend in spite of the league's ratings success and continued popularity, it seems to be less of the cultural force it once was. You know, there have been all these stories about the NFL trying to get this big name act, that big name act to play the halftime show for the big game. And people have been saying no. Rihanna said no. Jay-Z said no. Other popular artists said no because they just don't agree with the politics of the league. Is there a certain divorcing of the NFL from a lot of the popular culture? And is that good for the league? I think so. Uh, In terms of the first question, I do think that there has been a divorce from a lot of what the meaning of the Super Bowl halftime show is. Maroon Mm. 5 canceled their press conference that they normally do in order to talk about the halftime show. The actual halftime act decided they did not want to talk to the media before (laughs) performing in the Super Bowl. That alone tells you that a large amount of clout has been lost with the league. However, there's two ways to look at this. Number one is we never really knew in the past how many people turned down the Super Bowl to begin with Mm. because we just weren't in the same information age and people weren't willing to come out with that sort of knowledge of like, oh, yeah, I said no to that because everybody has a different reason. Mm -hmm. But also, I do think things have changed. I mean, the Super Bowl is just not what it once was in terms of, you know, the eyeballs you get for that. Some people aren't ready for it. Some people just don't want that. 
it's not necessarily all that worth it for them for some of these bigger name stars that they're getting. I mean, that, that they're shooting for. Let's not forget the Super Bowl is not something that is so old that we can't just look back to the first one and yeah. say that we understand how far this has come. I believe that the first act at halftime of the Super Bowl in Super Bowl one was a high school band. It might have been a college band, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. It's not like it was some superstar at the time. You know, yeah. I think what it will do is it will make you look back on performances like Prince when he performed in the rain, what Beyonce did, and you'll say, wow, these really were transcendent, not just because of the artists in their time, but because we probably won't see people this famous even doing this ever again. With all due respect to Maroon 5, who I'm a big fan of, (laughs) they have many bangers. Let's not get crazy about that. (laughs) They aren't on the level of the Princes and the Beyonce. They're just not, you know? And so, and they're a different type of band. And so... Moving in that direction, I think, is an indication that maybe this won't be the big thing that it once was. And maybe it shouldn't be. You know, yeah. maybe it should be a little bit more saccharine than we once seen. But who knows? Who knows? If you could pick any halftime show for the big game, who would you pick? Oh, that's an excellent question, Mr. Sanders. <laughs> You're clearly a professional journalist. Um, <laughs> let me think uh, right now. See, the thing is... I don't hate Maroon 5 as a pick. Oh, yeah, I mean, they're good. Like, they got a lot of hits. They so, really do. If I'm being honest, I don't really do a lot of thinking about Super Bowl halftime shows. I kind of like this one, if we're being yeah. really, really real. You know who I would pick? Sierra. Ooh. Because she can dance. And she's, she's from, from the ATL, yeah. Yes. That's and, like, I think the halftime show was more about the visual than the audio because the audio is weird anyway. It's a big stadium, it's yeah. not good for acoustics. But imagine her just dancing for 12 minutes on that field. This beat is automatic yeah Yeah, no sierra's got some hits i love it that's a good call exactly this beat is automatic supersonic hypnotic funky fresh thanks again to clinton yates espn radio host columnist at the undefeated and friend of the show uh amy karen sierra I can't she's from name Atlanta. more than one of these songs. Like, this is the song you know. Like, this is a bop. This is but, like, Russell Wilson's wife. <laughs> That's she's the lady it? in her own right. Okay. <laughs> Sierra was Russell a big deal. Russell Wilson's wife. <laughs> <laughs> I'm paying attention to Russell Wilson. <laughs> Wait, what Mostly about what about like our, our what about J Lo? I would watch her do the halftime show. You know, there was all this outcry about Maroon 5 getting the halftime show and not an Atlanta act. Right. So after Maroon 5 signed up for it, they did add, kind of last minute, Big Boy, one half of Outkast, who's from Atlanta. So he'll be on the stage as well. Why are you not, laughing? Half of Outkast is That's no like, Outkast That is at not all. a lot of star power. I'm sorry. All right, it's time for a break. When we come back, we'll play a game other than football. My favorite game. Who said that? BRB. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide to address inequality in all its forms. Learn more at FordFoundation.org. On the next Ask Me Another, RuPaul's Drag Race alums, Bob the Drag Queen, and Monet Exchange. They share what it's like competing in the Olympics of drag. So join me, Ophira Eisenberg, on NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, NPR's Karen Grigsby-Bates, friend of the show, covers race, ethnicity, and culture for NPR's Code Switch team. Listeners, if you haven't, check out the Code Switch podcast and the Code Switch newsletter, which Karen writes every week. Thank you, thank you. Oh, yes. Also here with Amy Kaufman. She covers film, celebrity, and pop culture at the LA Times. And you have an announcement as well about your book. 
Yes, next week my book Bachelor Nation is coming out in paperback on Ooh. February 5th. Yes. I love The Bachelor. I interviewed <gasps> Elon Gale, one of the EPs of the oh, show. Oh, you should read my book because there's a lot of juice in about him in there. Oh my goodness, I love it. You guys ready for a game? My favorite sure. game? Sure. It's called Who Said That? Ooh, Who said that? Who said that? All right, you guys know how this goes. It's a very simple game. I share a quote from the week. You both have to guess who said that, or at least get close, get the story that I'm referring to. Um, the winner gets absolutely nothing. If Maybe some, some rich rights. person gave you something and said, Sam, this is a platinum Rolex, and I want you to give it to the winner of who said that. I couldn't do that. You couldn't do it. Your damn integrity is just... <laughs> Also, who is this person that's going to give us a Rolex? I don't know. Uh, uh, So there are no buzzers. Just yell out the answer or the keyword as soon as you know it. Ready for the first quote? Mm -hmm. Here we go. I've never prepared myself for CPR in my life. I had no idea what I was doing. Who said that? Oh, that's that guy that saved somebody's life. I saw what he looks like on the news. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, but there was a thing that he did based on a TV show that he had seen before. Yes, where he learned to do uh, 30 and 2, I believe, the, com- the, the compressions the and then compression. blowing into uh, the other person's mouth. From like mouth. ER or something? He learned it from watching The Office. Oh, gosh. Oh, which is something I never watched. Yes. Watched. So, so this man in Tucson, 21-year-old Cross Scott, was driving past a car on the side of the road, hazard lights on. He stops, try to help, and there was a woman who was unconscious. He smashed the window, climbed in to help. He said, I know she needs CPR. And he says that he remembered uh, Michael Scott in the office doing chest compressions on a CPR dummy to the beat of the Bee Gees staying alive. This is like a very iconic scene real? from the that's, office. That is, is what they real? gave us in CPR training. <laughs> Have you guys seen that scene? It's amazing. Okay, well, a good trick is to pump to the tune of Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. Do you know that song? Yes, yes, I do. I love that song. <clears throat> First I was afraid, I was petrified. No, it's, uh, 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 staying alive, staying alive. You were in the parking lot earlier. That's how I know you. So the scene just devolves into absurdity, uh, but it actually worked for good this week when this guy saved a life thanks to The Office. That's wild. Right? Yeah, I would say if people have the chance, anytime you get offered a chance to learn CPR training, um, you should do it. It doesn't take a long time, and you could save somebody's life. Yeah, what if everyone thinks, like, oh, I'm good, I'll just watch the episode. (laughs) (laughs) It worked for Cross Scott. Uh, All right, Karen, you got that one. I guess. Yeah, you're close. (laughs) I helped you out a little bit. All right, ready for the next quote? Okay. Quote, It would be an incredible brand play for anyone attached to the big reveal. Our target demographic is Gen Z, and they're really attached to these big social media moments. What is a big social media reveal that's going to be happening soon? It involves uh, a certain Instagram account that's been making waves the last few weeks. Not Kylie. Not Kylie. Someone who surpassed Kylie. The, the orange square. Yes, Karen, you got it. The egg. Are you kidding? Okay, so yes. So, so you all know by now. Uh, that, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I haven't even told you the story yet. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I've been following the story of the world-famous Instagram egg. A few weeks ago, someone made an account where they would just post a picture of an egg. It became the most liked Instagram photo of all time. Since that happened, the, this account has been posting more photos of the same egg, but each <laughs> photo has the egg being cracked more and more. 
as if one day the egg is going to hatch. Oh. So now the thinking is... How do they know it's a what's fertile egg? What's in the egg? egg? Oh, my God. The thinking is... What's a reporter in... wants to know. <laughs> the thinking now is what's in the egg. And a lot of brands are trying to get their advertisements oh to be in the egg Why when it hatches. society the Everything, actual worst? Everything always so, hinges on commerce. So friend of the show, Taylor Lorenz, had a story in The Atlantic this week all about the egg. And she reported that an organization calling for the impeachment of Donald Trump was going to possibly be in the egg when oh, it that hatched. billionaire guy that Yeah, Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer said, no, we turned them down. But, <laughs> but they asked. Yeah. But the branding company behind the Instagram egg is looking for a sponsor for this big reveal. Oh, it wants the payout. Yeah. So it's no longer pure. It's no longer pure. Was it ever pure? Then will people no, even it was, be it was always a, a scheme to show how you can create a viral moment, right? Yeah. yeah. There's thinking that a possible candidate for president might announce through Howard the egg. Schultz. <laughs> Get it back on track with that egg. Starbucks does serve eggs. <laughs> it does. Not with shells. But <laughs> can it serve the American public? Oy. All right, third quote, final quote. This one's my favorite, actually, of the week. The quote is, barbecue grill. Why am I so bad at this? <laughs> KFC? No. It's actually two words that weren't spoken this week. They were written on a celebrity's body as a tattoo. Oh, Ariana Grande! Oh, you got really excited about that! <laughs> <laughs> they were written on her body? It's like her tattoo. Tattoo, tattoo. yeah. What? Tattooed. I love. I she love the enthusiasm of outdoor cooking equipment. No. Let me not explain. Not intentionally. She went to get a tattoo on her hand this week. Uh, she wanted to spell out in Japanese characters the words Seven Rings." Seven Rings" is the name of her newest big hit single, just hit number one. Uh, turns out, the words that were spelled on the inside of her hand are uh, Japanese characters that spell out a word that means a small charcoal grill. Hibachi. She used the Japanese. Or did the tattoo artist mess up? So it doesn't spell hibachi. It spells shichirin, which is another word for a barbecue grill. Uh, but this happened because Ariana was supposed to get more characters that would have spelled the phrase correctly. But it hurt too much, and she stopped. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she deserves Girl, that Girl, I respect that. <laughs> um, in spite of your enthusiastic third response in the game for Ariana Grande, I do think Karen Grigsby-Bates won the game this week. I don't know how that happened. Congrats, I helped, Karen. I, I helped I out know, a lot. I don't know <laughs> anything about Generation Z. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, all right, now it's time to end the show. As we do every week, we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. Let's listen. Hi, Sam. This is Gloria in Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm sure this is the best thing for many people this week, but for me, it's that the partial government shutdown is finally over and my husband and I can go back to work and our son whose daycare is in a federal building can go back to school and the joy everyone had in being able to go back to work and do our jobs was phenomenal. Hi, Sam. This is Allison from Seattle. The best part of my week was seeing my 10-year-old dog explore our first house. Really made me feel like it could be our home. This is Angela from Dallas, and the best thing that happened to me this week is I got a promotion. I received my acceptance letter to the University of North Carolina's PhD in social work program. I became an aunt to a beautiful baby girl. Welcome to the world, Cecily Rose, and congratulations, Dan and Heather. 
this week I told everyone that I am transitioning to be the woman I am meant to be. The ability to be my true self with everyone is the best thing that has happened to me this week. Hi Sam, this week I wrote a check for $17,902.14 and paid off my student loans. I feel like I just slayed a dragon. Hey Sam, it's Katie calling from Boston. The best thing that happened to me this week was that after 16 months of working and traveling overseas, I came home and surprised my parents. My older brother and my dad's wife uh, helped me plan the surprise, and I just felt so loved. So it was really good to be home. Thank you so much, Sam. Thanks. And I hope you have a great weekend. Bye. I love it. It was so heartwarming. Yeah. Also, kudos to our friend who called in and said that she paid off her student loans yes. with a check for $17,000. That was You're doing huge. something She's right. She's been saving. She's been saving. Yeah. She's been saving. And the relief must be oh just amazing. Yeah. Many thanks to all those listeners you heard there. Gloria, Allison, Angela, Hayden, Mary, Kay, Lori, and Katie. Listeners, we listen to all of these that come in, so share yours with me. You can uh, just send me an audio file. Email that to samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. And while you're at it, send photos of your dogs. We like getting those, too. All right. We're going to go out now on Miss Alanis Morissette and her song, Hand in My Pocket, from her classic album, Jagged Little Pill, as we celebrate the news this week that that album is coming to Broadway as a Broadway musical. I'm literally on Ticketmaster right now, searching, searching, searching. <laughs> you can look, but you won't be able to afford it. It's going to be oh. like Hamilton. Oh. You know, wait for two or three years for the road show. <laughs> yeah. and... You're right, you're right. Thanks to my guest today, NPR's Karen Grigsby-Bates, who covers race, ethnicity, and culture for our Code Switch team, and Amy Kaufman, covering film, film, celebrity, and pop culture for the LA Times. Thank you both for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Oh, yeah. This week, the show was produced by Brent Bachman, Anjali Sastry, and Alex McCall. The show was engineered by Marcia Caldwell. Steve Nelson is our director of programming. Our editor is Jordana Hochman, and we had editing help this week from my good friend, Mathani Maturi. Thanks for joining us, Mathani. She took a break from D.C. Washington Political News to help us out. We appreciate you. Uh, our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, refresh your feed Tuesday morning for my chat with Angie Thomas. You probably know her uh, as the best-selling author of the young adult novel The Hate You Give. Uh, she finished this book while she was working as a church secretary. We talk about how her life has changed since then. We talk about her new book and she even raps for me a little bit. Alright, check for that one on Tuesday. Till next time, thanks for listening. Talk soon. I forget, did she play the harmonica in this one herself? I don't know, but I saw recently that she her hair is shorter. And like, <gasps> no! I know, I was like, no, I picture her in such a specific way with that long black mane, yes. like the rage in her face. I'm like, please don't be happy or cut any inches from your hair. <laughs> she has to stay caught in amber for the rest of her life. Exactly. Poor Alanis. <laughs> <laughs>